Jesus is here and wants to resurrect somebody. I want to talk to you today about the miracle of ordinary resurrections, the kinds of resurrections that you and I have the chance to be part of as part of our living out of the divine within. The kinds of resurrections I want to talk to you about this morning are those miracles we create when we take care of each other, when we take care of our neighbors, perhaps most particularly when we take care of strangers, when we help strangers become neighbors and help neighbors become friends. From the earliest days when the first stories of the Hebrew Bible began to coalesce, people knew that how they treated each other was somehow connected with their relationship with this divine presence that is mysterious to us now as it was to people thousands of years ago. Our relationship with God is somehow connected to our accountability to one another. And all over the world, our ancestors from across the globe have understood this. This is one of the reasons that so many cultures have stories about brothers, stories about twins, like Jacob, Jacob and Esau, Romulus and Remus, Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Brothers, these brothers represent many things, but among them is the notion of ethics. Some of you have heard me say this, the notion of how we treat one another. And this doesn't mean only those closest to us, our siblings, our friends. It also means the stranger, the other. Both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Testament repeatedly talk about how we treat the stranger. And so today I want to talk about resurrection and the other. I want to talk about miracles of friendship and solidarity and compassion as lived across culture boundaries and as lived as an antidote to shadow tragedy and grief, new light out of darkness, hope for anxious times. We're in that part of the summer where for me, these past 10 years, I start to feel the drumbeat towards the anniversary of 9-11. I start to notice the march towards the end of summer. Big Brother comes on TV. I don't watch it, but I, the ads are there. Um, Soon the ads for the U.S. Open will begin. The sky will start to take on that particular blue of this time of year. Back to school sales have started and the anniversary of that day approaches. We will begin to talk about that day as we approach the 10th anniversary this year. It's an important milestone and milestones carry an extra emotional charge. Many of us have different ways of approaching that day because we are all different and so our inclinations will vary. But I want to share with you that this year I have heard a lot of emphasis on strength, on resilience, on rediscovering the support we all showed for each other back then. And I have heard this from people who lost spouses and children on that day. I've heard this from survivors. I've heard this from first responders. In a time of continued healing and grief, there is room to rediscover community, care, solidarity, and friendship. And so today I want to share some amazing stories with you, stories of people I've come to know through my work on a project called Prepare New York. 
It's connected to the uh, 10th anniversary. I won't say too much about it. You can visit prepareny.com or talk to me later. But I want to invite you into the journey of inspiration that I've been on since I started work on this project. I've had the good fortune to meet some amazing people and hear some amazing stories of ordinary resurrections. I've met a man named Jerry. Jerry was in the North Tower when the plane hit and he made it out. If you come to the performance of Performing Tribute, which is a staging of first-person narratives here in the Yonhus Theater on uh, September 17th, you'll uh, hear his story. One of the things he ultimately did out of the trauma of escape and survival was become involved in an initiative called the 9-11 Community for Common Ground Initiative, which is a group made up of survivors, family members, and first responders who are committed to bringing people in the city together across lines of difference to find common ground. One of the things Jerry has been doing is building, helping foster communication between people in the Muslim community and the 9-11 community. More and more members of the 9-11 community are reaching out to make sure that their Muslim neighbors know that they do not hold them responsible. They do not look at them with a the gaze of blame. I met a woman named Megan. Megan, as an emergency medical technician, responded on 9-11 and worked at Ground Zero. She shared with us some of the grim vividness of that experience. And then she told us that at some point after the U.S. went into Afghanistan, she realized that there were people there just like her, pulling body bodies out of rubble. And she wanted to connect with first responders there. She didn't know how to find them, and so early on, one of first, her first letters was addressed, something like, Firefighter, Kabul, Afghanistan. This effort has become Ground Zero for Peace, a project that builds friendship between U.S. and Afghan first responders. I hope someday you get a chance to hear her talk about her work because a lot of her story is very intense, but she's also very engaging. You know, she said, I'm afraid of everything. I'm the most unlikely person to be in this story that I'm telling. And she talked about her first trip to Afghanistan, how terrified she was, and how, um, and you can feel her relief when she got there and the Afghan people were so welcoming to her. And I have a great picture of her surrounded by Afghan firefighters. I've gotten to know a wonderful Muslim man named Hesham who lives on Staten Island and is part of an uh, interfaith group of uh, religious leaders who are working to build understanding. I can't wait to meet his wife because she's apparently a big Springsteen fan like me. <laughs> so common ground takes many varieties. <laughs> I met a wonderful young Sikh woman named Valerie. You know, about four days after 9-11, a Sikh man was shot in Arizona, um, a vigilante mistaking a turban, a turban Sikh man for a Muslim. Of course, he had been Muslim. He probably would have had no more to do with 9-11 than the Sikh man did. But at any rate, this, the man who was killed was a family friend of Valerie's family. She was 20. She picked up a camera and started traveling across the country, documenting stories of, health, of hate crimes. And along the way, a filmmaker heard of her work, and together they created what has now become an award-winning film called 
divided we fall, Americans in the aftermath. And now she's part of a movement of young people, they call them millennials, who are uh, connect, connecting the dots between all sorts of social justice issues. And there's a new initiative being launched at Auburn Seminary called Groundswell that sees a link between racism, between Islamophobia, and the work for LGBT rights, the work for immigrant rights. Very moving when people are able to move beyond their own interest to understand and be drawn to the building of solidarity with other people. It reminds me of another uh, uh, someone, person I met from the Sikh community, a musician named Sunny who plays the trumpet. Um, and is an activist and blogger. Um, and he talked to us about uh, an experience he had about five years ago of uh, a group of youth surrounded him in the subway and tore off his turban. Again, holding him responsible for 9-11. He said no one did anything. Amongst his writings, uh, Sonny blogs not only as an advocate for his community, but for LGBT rights. Just this week, I had a great experience of sort of cross-community understanding in a dinner with uh, Councilman Danny Drum in Jackson Heights, Queens. Uh, a friend, a, a colleague, arranged this dinner, and we were an amazing group of Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and Hindus all meeting together. And uh, Danny's beloved in his community because he's been a staunch advocate for the Muslim community as well as for other people in his, his um, neighborhood. And he's, as a gay man, he's also been active in the work for LGBT rights. And he told us this great story of how after the bill legalizing at long last gay marriage passed in Albany, he was somewhere in his district and a Bangladeshi Muslim woman in full hijab came running up to him saying, congratulations, congratulations. The friendship of solidarity and compassion is infectious. The active neighboring of the other, the intentional building of friendship is magic. When others stand with us, our hearts are more able to stand with others. And when we stand with others, we help them reach out as well. These are resurrection stories, friendship out of enmity, understanding out of suspicion, light out of darkness. Through us, Jesus is here looking to resurrect somebody, and we are the vehicle. By reaching out to people who are marginalized, isolated, oppressed, under siege, and even who are feeling lonely, forgotten, abandoned, we very profoundly bring them out of hell. Resurrection is in our power. A final story. I need your strength to get with it, through it without crying. This is a story about a woman named uh, Phyllis Rodriguez. I haven't met her yet. We've exchanged some emails. I'm a little afraid to meet her because her story is so profound. I'm in awe of her. Uh, she and her husband lost a son on 9-11. And uh, uh, I've seen a video uh, on YouTube of her speaking and you can see the grief of her journey etched on her face and she speaks about it very movingly and also about the amount of support that she received. 
in the due course of time, she tells that she was watching TV and she saw another grieving mother. This was the mother of Zacharias Massawi, the only man who has been convicted for the attacks of September 11. She realized that unlike her, this woman had no support. She realized she wasn't quite strong enough yet, but she vowed that one day she wanted to meet her. Time passed and she did. And it, when it came time for Masawi to be sentenced, I don't think there was a trial about his innocence because I think that he confessed, although I think there's some question now about that, but that's not mine. I'll leave that for another time. At any rate, when this woman was coming to the United States for the sentencing trial, Phyllis vowed to be her companion. And she attended every day of the trial with her so she wouldn't be alone. And a tentative friendship began. This woman, Aisha, and Phyllis have now become friends, have now come to hear each other's stories. And these two women, of course, have every reason to look at each other from hardened positions of grief and fear. But they show us that we don't have to be prisoners of our sorrows, our hurts, our terrors, our suspicions, our distortions of each other. This is miracle territory. This is the expansive love of God. And it is that expansiveness that is evoked in the story of the loaves and fishes. As Ray often reminds us, the stories in the Bible were not writ written as news accounts of events, aiming for historical accuracy. They were created to convey meaning, sometimes drawing from legends as their reference, sometimes drawing from events that did take place. The story of the feeding of the crowd with bread and fish is told, at least in part, to remind us that we must take care of one another. We must not send people away in need to fend for themselves. We have to find ways to help. But also, the magic of this commitment to one another yields abundance. And there is abundance of light and hope in all of the stories I've shared. All of the people I've mentioned live a promise of hope. And for most of them, it has been shaped out of trauma, profound loss, and fear. Jerry, Megan, Hashem, Valerie, Sunny, Danny, Phyllis, Aisha, remind us that abundance is possible, that living out of that abundance is possible. Their lives call us to the possible. I'll close this morning with a brief comment about two of the hymns we have sung, we'll sing. I chose Morning Has Broken this morning because I first learned of it, uh, not in church, but from Cat Stevens. When I was in high school in the early 70s, my girlfriends and I were all in love with Cat Stevens. And I love his music to this day, oh my gosh. His arrangement of Morning Has Broken is for me the arrangement. Well, and as some of you know, in the late 70s, uh, Cat Stevens embraced Islam and became Yusuf Islam. Over the years, various inaccurate stories of him appeared in the media. He wasn't playing music. You thought maybe he had become part of some radical fringe of Islam. But then a couple of years ago, I couldn't sleep and I turned on PBS and there on Tavis Smiley was Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, playing music again, including 
the beloved songs from years ago. And they showed a very recent clip of him singing the song Father and Son, some of you may remember. Cat Stevens still used Sif Islam, but now having integrated both of these parts of his life, the way we all must do, we all face the task of making sense of the various chapters in our lives. Seeing him just brought me this incredible feeling of joy. I had a profound sense of something being healed. To know that being Muslim did not somehow mean he had to repudiate his earlier work in life, which I had worried about, made me breathe a big sigh of relief and let go of some residual tension I had been carrying about my own growing encounter with Islam, which has been overwhelmingly positive, a tension I had not named to myself, a misunderstanding about Islam I had not named to myself. And this is important because part of the story of resurrection and the other is the role that information plays. Actively seeking to learn, to hear, to understand is a critical piece. Always remembering that our assumptions about people are not facts. And then a, a, a word about the hymn we'll sing now. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. I chose it because for me it captures the mystery, the gravitas, the profound intensity of this work of resurrection that we are invited to take part in. This is deep work. This is not sentimental work. This is work of courage. This is work that transmutes real pain and real fear and real dread and real suspicion and real reticence and real hesitation and real self-absorption and says something more must be possible. This is the true treasure of the philosopher's stone. By transmutation, by transformation, by being actors of resurrection, we become more of who we were created to be by that mysterious divine one we call God. <laughs>